So for today, if you remember the context that we started in way back 10 weeks ago, uh, the city of Ephesus and Paul ministering in the city of Ephesus and planting a church there, and then he leaves Ephesus, um, he leaves some friends there to continue the church, he goes away, he ends up getting put in prison, he's now writing a letter back to the church in Ephesus in which he had helped establish this church. And one of the things, if you remember, when we were looking in Acts, uh, the story of, of Paul being in Ephesus, that there were extraordinary miracles taking place in the city. Just remember that context. Um, it mentions that evil spirits were leaving people in the presence of Paul and in, in the Christians that were there. And then you remember the story about the seven sons of Sceva um, and you know them trying to cast out a demon and getting beat up and thrown out of the home. And then talks about as people came to Christ, how all the books of magic and spiritism were gathered up and burned, 50,000 silver drachmas worth, 50,000 days wages. Basically, like however many years that is, 10 years worth of wages um, burned up in these books of magic. So all of that to remember that Ephesus and who the people that this letter is being written to, the city, was steeped in the occult and spiritual forces. And so when Paul's writing this letter, he didn't really have to explain to the people of Ephesus about supernatural spirits or about powers and principalities or that the fact that there's a spiritual battle going on because this city was living it. All the Christians in the church would have known somebody in their family or heard about something, you know, heard the, the, the discussion in the marketplace um, about the exorcisms that were taking place and about the spiritual, the, the evil spirits that were leaving and all of these things that were going on. So these people understood what spiritual warfare was. <laughs> they understood what, what Paul's talking about here at the end of, beginning, at the end of chapter 6. And we also saw that Paul had a very practical purpose in mind as he's writing to his Christian friends in Ephesus. He's writing this letter because he wants them to be equipped to live their Christian life. He, he starts out with those grand statements about God and Christ, but his purpose is clear. He prays that they know Christ so that they can be transformed, so that they become new creations, that they can take off their old self and put on the new, so that they can live differently, so that their marriages are different, so that they parent differently, so that their work is different. And we saw all of that in sort of the middle chapters of Ephesians. So Paul has in mind this letter that he wants to equip them. And as he's describing this transformation, you'll remember as Pastor Chris preached, Paul reminds the Ephesians that as they live out their gospel lives, they are putting this church in Ephesus on display to heavenly powers and principalities. Right? And we, just, we stopped for a moment there just to try to get our head around that, that that as we forgive and as we are merciful and as we are gracious and as we live out gospel realities in our lives, the church puts on display the wisdom of God to powers and principalities in heavenly places. And that was no more true anywhere else than in Ephesus where Paul is writing this letter to because he's saying these evil spirits in the city, these evil spirits that we've been casting out, these, these spirits that are captivating the minds of your friends and family in this very city. When you live as the church, as God has instructed, you put on display the wisdom of God to those spirits. And so we saw this. This is what, this is what Paul's aiming at. He wants to equip them to live out their lives. And now Paul wants to put on the exclamation point here of this equipping in his letter to drive home that equipping is what has to happen in the Christian life. So he makes his point clear at the end. Paul finishes his letter by literally describing the equipment 
or the armor that Christians are to wear and what they're wearing it for. So if you were any doubt that Paul wanted to equip Christians, you just get to the end of his letter and he literally says, here's the equipment I want you to put on. This is how you live your Christian life. This is how you are prepared for it. He says in Ephesians 6, 10 to 13, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and have done, and having done all to stand firm. And so there's only a few places where Paul talks directly about spiritual warfare. And this is one of the main ones. Paul is not beating around the bush here about what we need to be equipped for. We need to be equipped because we are fighting against spiritual forces. And when we run into texts on spiritual warfare as Christians, there's, there's two ways that we can kind of tend to fall off of the center line of Scripture. We can think too much of spiritual powers, ascribing to them too much influence, thinking that they are, you know, causing all of our bad behavior or, you know, everything that happens has to do with, you know, some immediate spiritual presence that's tempting us in some way and, and give them too much power over the circumstances around us. You know, it's, you know, it's some evil spirit stole my parking spot. That's why I can't, you know, park where I wanted to park. And that's what made me angry, you know, that, that, People are getting influenced by spirits and we think that everything that happens in the world is spiritually driven. We can think too much about it and then we need to remember that Jesus prayed to his disciples and he said, Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of this world but to keep them safe from the evil one. And and so we don't want to ascribe too much power to spiritual forces because Jesus himself has prayed for his disciples to leave us in the world and to keep us safe from the evil one. And then John, later on in John 17, when he's writing... The disciple says, you are from God and have overcome, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so we have to be careful as Christians that we don't ascribe too much influence or too much power to spiritual forces and forget that we've overcome. Through Jesus, we are greater. He is greater in us than he who is in the world. So we don't want to ascribe too much to spiritual powers. But then on the other hand, and perhaps where we fall into our modern era, and maybe even as Baptists particularly, we're tempted to fall is to think too little of spiritual powers. That there's sometimes a lack of emphasis on the reality of Satan or spiritual forces that are set against us. And that's the concern which prompts the Apostle Paul here at the end of his letter to make sure that, that his Christian brothers and sisters understand. He wants to say before he finishes with this letter that the believers need to be aware of and the context of the struggle that they are in. For his, their struggle is not against flesh and blood. And if there's anything that evangelical Christianity in North America is prone to, it's thinking that our struggle is against flesh and blood. And more on that later. And there's a lot to unpack in this text here. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 21 sermons on verses 10 to 20. Okay, 21 sermons just on those 10 verses. The Puritan writer William Gurnall wrote roughly 300 years ago. He wrote over 1,000 pages on the same 10 verses. The Christian in complete armor. I am going to summarize. (laughs) not 21 sermons not 1200 pages i'm going to summarize here's my summary we are in a war don't fight the wrong enemy there are many schemes find your strength in god okay 
Ephesians 6, 10 to 13, which we have just read, but I will read again. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And that's where I'm going to focus. I'm going to focus on those first few verses to understand what it is that we're in. And I'm sure in your groups that you spent a lot of time on the armor of God, and that's great. I'm not going to spend time there as much as I am here on these particular verses. And Paul explaining, first of all, that we are in a war. He says, be strong in the Lord, put on the whole armor of God. And so Paul's language now shifts from his very practical explanation about marriage and parenting and working and being an employer and employee, and it shifts suddenly and clearly, and he chooses the language of war. And it's not going to be the kind of war that you expect, but the reality is we are at war, and Paul uses warlike language. We must be strong. We must be equipped and armored. If we were not in a battle, we wouldn't need strength and armor, but Paul says we do need it, and so therefore we are in a war. And there's lots of places today we could visit and know we are in a war zone. There's parts of any large city that if you stepped out of a cab on the wrong street, you would immediately know that you were in a dangerous place. But for many Christians, in the comfort of our own homes and relationships and jobs and habits and patterns and lifestyles, we have no idea that we're in a a war. The greatest lie the devil ever told is that he doesn't exist and there's no cause for alarm. And so we as Christians can go through our life very comfortably not realizing that we are in a war. Paul says, as we seek to know God and as we seek to live out our gospel lives in the world, we have an enemy set against us. There is nothing in God's plan that Satan does not want to undo. And this is what I mean. Everything Paul has just told us about who God is and our lives with God in Ephesians, all of that stuff in the first five chapters, Satan is bent on destroying. You could phrase it this way. Is is God going about establishing a new kingdom of his people from men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and causing them to live as examples of future glory in this present age? Yes, that is what God is doing. And Satan is doing his best to destroy that. Has God broken down the dividing walls of hostility between people ethnically and socially and relationally so that all people might live without hostility towards one another? Yes, that is what God is doing. And Satan, where God has broken down dividing walls, will attempt to rebuild them. Satan is set against everything God is doing. Is God working so that the reconciled and the redeemed will live together in unity and in purity in his church? Yes, he is. And where there is unity and harmony among God's people, you can be assured that Satan is there trying to sow seeds of discord and sin. Bring it down personally. Are you personally trying to live out the call that the Apostle Paul has described in Ephesians 5 as husbands and as wives and as parents and children in your home? Good, of course you are. But be aware that the devil is doing his best to destroy you there. Are you personally seeking to be a faithful Christian in the world and in the marketplace, acting with integrity and showing love and compassion and being a person of righteousness and justice? Yes, That is what we're doing, and we can be certain that Satan will do anything he can to ruin us and to corrupt us and to discourage us there. 
So everything that God has set in motion, everything that God is doing, you have to understand Satan is resisting. That's what Paul's saying. We are at war, and so we need to be prepared and we need to be equipped to be at war. Imagine if a general was to take a group of his well-trained soldiers without any armament, without any weaponry, and just drop them into a war zone like in the streets of Damascus in Syria and never tell them that a war was going on there. They would be dead in a matter of minutes, likely. And that's the same thing when Christians drop our young people or we walk ourselves into a war zone that we are living without recognition that there's a war going on. And the Apostle Paul wants us to understand, first of all, that our Christian discipleship is lived out not safely distant from the battle lines, but right on the front lines. We are at war, is what Paul is saying. And there is a sense in which we need a wartime mentality. But as with everything that God tells us about our world, it is not the enemy, nor is it the kind of war that we might expect. It's a different kind of enemy, and it's a different kind of war than our first expectation might be. So the second thing that we have to take from this text is that as Christians, we must not fight the wrong enemy. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, on the radio and television, literally every day since September 11, 2001, we in North America have been hearing updates on an ongoing global war that is rooted in ideological and religious differences. The language of jihadism has come to dominate concepts of religious warfare, and Christians, evangelical Christians, especially in North America, have found itself too often closely resembling that violent, warlike stance against people, against politicians, against immigrants, against minorities, against special interest groups, or just people who hold different political ideological views from us. And the reality is, is that the Christian church in North America in the last 15 or so years has become painted with the same brush. Because too often we as a church have been guilty of believing our enemy is people. Right against left, conservative against liberal, moral against immoral. The enemies of the church are people that we have to take a warlike stance against. But notice, in this passage, we recognize a fundamental difference in the Christian language of warfare. In this passage, the Apostle Paul says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against people. Our ultimate enemy is not people. The warfare that you are going to carry out as a Christian is certainly not the warfare of taking up arms against your neighbor, and I think we all understand that. But understand this, the warfare that we are participating in as Christians is not even disliking or being hostile towards your neighbor at all, regardless of what they believe. We are not to be hostile towards people. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4, 2 Corinthians is another passage where Paul talks about the spiritual warfare. It's kind of a parallel passage as he's writing to another church in Corinth. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Right? Are you getting it? We're not fighting people. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. So Paul is saying you are at war, but it's not the war you think. It is not disliking certain kinds of people. It's not being hostile to people who hold certain views. It's not getting into conflicts with special interest groups. 
It is not weapons of the flesh, and it is not the flesh that you are at war with. And if you prefer to hear it from Jesus, he said it too. Jesus says in John 18.36, he answered the disciples, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus says really clearly, if, if my kingdom had to do with this world and the flesh, then my disciples it would have been like Peter. He would have grabbed some swords. Yeah, we would, have, you know, we would have grabbed some weapons and some shields. And all of my disciples and all of my followers, you know, they would have been hacking away at Roman soldiers left, right, and center. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, so they don't pick up swords. Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And so the Christian kingdom does not advance with the sword. Or to put it another way, to make it maybe a little more relevant, because I don't, you know, we're not picking up guns and going fighting for Christianity, thank goodness. But to put it a little more clear, the Christian kingdom does not advance with conflict. It does not advance with hostility. It does not advance with disrespect. It does not advance with anything of that nature. It's a very simple way to know that some of these so-called Christian wars back in history when Christians were supposedly fighting you know, to free the pagan lands, we know that these wars raged not because people were following God's will, because clearly we've just read that it's not God's will that his people would pick up swords or that his kingdom would spread by the sword. And it's not God's will that his kingdom would spread by any sort of conflict or hostility. That's not the kind of war we're waging. We are to love our neighbor the same way we love ourselves. So the call of the Christian faith is not to fight people or even movements or ideologies. Our fight is against powers that lie behind those things. And the closer we as Christians find ourselves being involved in a battle against people on Facebook or anywhere else, the farther we are from the true battle. So don't get caught fighting the wrong enemy as Christians. If we're fighting people, we're not fighting the battle that Paul says we're in. So who is the real enemy? Well, the real enemy has many many schemes. He's got many tactics. We're fighting. He says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And one of those schemes is convincing us that we're at war against people and not against him. That's one of his schemes, but there's many more schemes. The word there in Greek is methodius. It's the methods or the tactics or the schemes. And the the devil has methods for every type of battle. In this particular age of assigning so much of our identity to gender and sexuality, one of the common arguments that arises is why would God put some people at more disadvantage than others with a greater temptation to sin? Well, this is one of the schemes of the devil. He's, He's working to cause people confusion. First of all, God doesn't tempt us, Satan does, and he has many schemes that work against all people, not just people with different gender identities. It's impossible for us to say that someone born with a certain sexual temptation, and by the way, that would be all of us, has any greater temptation to sin against God than someone born into poverty, or for that matter, born into wealth, or born as a white male European, or a black female Nigerian, rich, poor, North American, European, old, young, able, disabled, Satan has schemes to tempt all of us in this battle. We could be tempted to curse God and die, as we'll hear about in a few weeks in Job. Right? There's lots of reasons we are tempted to curse God, to ignore God, to hate God, to forget God. 
The devil has many schemes for all of us. He's got lots of methods to tempt and distract and destroy every person and every situation. And so we often say to ourselves, and we cannot say to ourselves, well, if I wasn't so young and driven by hormones, I wouldn't sin. Or if I just had enough money, it would be easier for me to avoid temptation. The rich people have it easier to be Christian. Or if I was born into a different family, or if I didn't have this illness, or if that person hadn't been so hurtful, or if I didn't have that experience, then I would be free from all this that causes me to struggle so much. But listen, nobody has it any better than you. Whatever struggle you are facing in this battle with the devil, whatever spiritual warfare is going on, understand that Satan has schemes for everyone to turn anyone from God for lots of different reasons. 300 years ago, Thomas Brooks wrote, Satan loves to sail with the wind. He knows your virtues and he knows your vices. He can turn your virtues against you and into vices, he will. And if he can take your vices and turn them into your ruin, he will. Satan has lots of tactics, lots of schemes, lots of methods. And so we don't escape the battle by blame shifting it to other people or to circumstances. The answer is we have to stand against his methods. And, and Paul talks about one particular scheme that the devil has in relation to the church. Of all the different spheres that the devil attacks, this one in the church is unforgiveness leading to disunity. And again, in that Second Corinthians passage where Paul's talking about spiritual warfare, he's speaking to the church in Corinth and he says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if you have forgiven anything, it has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Do you what Paul's saying here? He's saying there's a battle going on, and Satan is clever, and he's got lots of schemes, but we're not unaware. If we're fighting people, if there's hostility, then that's one of his schemes. He's convinced us to fight the wrong thing. We're fighting people instead of him. If we're unforgiving and it's sown in disunity... Light bulb moment. That's not people that you are actually upset with. It's Satan's schemes that are working in the church. And Paul is essentially saying here, we're not stupid. When people hold grudges and refuse to forgive, when they dig in on their rights and entitlement, when there is a root of bitterness growing up in a relationship, when Satan has a stronghold somewhere in our life, we're not unaware of the devil's schemes. And so he says, in this particular case, I forgive you. Whatever you may have done, you're not my real enemy. Satan is. And so when we think about our relationships, we think about the roots of bitterness growing up in our lives. We think about the strongholds that Satan might have in our heart. We have to say, this is not people that we are at war with. This is spiritual powers. This is our enemy. I'm going to forgive my brother or my sister. I'm going to give up that stronghold, whatever it is, because I'm not unaware of the devil's schemes. And that's where our true fight is. So we have to fight the right enemy, and we have to know that he has many schemes to be aware of. This is all before we even get to the armor of God. <laughs> this is what Paul is saying to us before we even get to how we're equipped to do it. Then he says, finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Find your strength in God. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So Paul is saying, in this battle, you need strength. You need to find strength for this battle, and you're going to find it in God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. One famously tough guy, Clint Eastwood, once squinted in the camera and said, a man's got to know his limitations. And that's what Paul is saying here. Know your limitations. In this battle against spiritual forces, Paul says, you don't have the strength in yourself 
And we see in the middle verses the words he uses to describe the strength of the enemy. Listen to how he describes them. He says they're rulers, they're authorities, they are cosmic powers over darkness, they are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. None of those things sound weak, nor pleasant. It's a demonic power that needs to be fought, and it would be very discouraging without this armor, without this strength of God. I mean, how do you fight the devil? Just, just stop for a minute and just think of that question for just a few seconds. Just think about it. How, how do you fight the devil? Like just the question itself, we know that there is no answer in our own flesh, right? Like, like if I was to sit down and think, okay, i got to fight with the devil coming up, how am I going to fight him? Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to lose. There will be no fight, right? It will be him hitting me, me hitting the floor. If it was just me and my flesh. But it's not. That's what Paul's saying. There is no answer in our flesh. And we figure that out pretty quick. It has to be God who does the fighting, and we have to be wearing His armor, bringing His strength into the battle. And so Paul says, be strong, stand firm. And the image here is of our strength to stand in a torrent of opposition. And we have, as Ephesians, the rest of Ephesians 6, 14 to 18 tells us, he says, you have a belt of truth and a breastplate of righteousness and boots of the gospel of peace and a shield of faith and a helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And in all of this, as we're equipped, we should be praying at all times in the Spirit. And I'm sure in your groups you've been talking about the armor of God this week and there's lots of good resources for you online or there's William Gurnell's 1,200-page book if you would like. If you want to get into the detail of all of those pieces of the armor and what they mean, Paul is not saying any of them by accident. There's an importance to truth and righteousness and the gospel and faith and salvation and the Word of God. This is how we fight. But I just want us to see this morning how this warfare plays out in our everyday lives. Notice that even speaking here in the city of Ephesus where magic rituals were common, where spiritism was rampant, where demon possession was well known. Paul's instructions to the church are not about exorcisms, not about confronting territorial demons, not about rebuking spirits or any kind of supernatural or miraculous Christian rites or rituals. It isn't, doesn't look anything like you would see in a Hollywood movie. Although exorcisms are a reality, although spiritual forces are present, it's not normal, it's not mainly how God expects us to fight the devil. He's not expect us to be performing some sort of spiritual ritual over them. That's not what Paul describes, even to the church in Ephesus, where this was regularly occurring to them. We've touched on 2 Corinthians before, another parallel passage where Paul talks about this spiritual battle, and we see the same thing in 2 Corinthians. This explanation that Paul gives as to how we fight this spiritual battle doesn't look at all like something Hollywood would come up with. He says in verses 4 to 6 in 2 Corinthians 10, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Okay, so what's he talking about? He's talking about spiritual warfare here. What's he going to say? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish our every disobedience and when your obedience is complete. (laughs) Okay, so that's not what I was expecting. He's not casting out demons. He's not rebuking spirits. Paul says, 
We don't destroy people. We destroy arguments and arrogant ideologies. We don't take our enemies captive. We take our own thoughts captive. We don't punish people who offend us. We punish our own sin and we conform ourselves to obedience. Remember how I said this was going to be a very different kind of war? We are at war, but it's not the war we expected. It's not even the war maybe as Christians we expected when we say spiritual warfare. When Paul brings up spiritual warfare, he's talking about destroying arguments and opinions and taking our own thoughts captive to Christ. This war does not look like any war we might have come to expect. Well, let me try and sum it up and and phrase it this way. This This is what I see Paul is saying. If you sort of see when you put it all together. We are in a war. We're in a war that is fought on many fronts. But it is fundamentally a war for peace. And what I want to do is reconcile a passage like this with its emphasis on war in the Christian life with a passage like Paul uses in 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4. And there's many other places Paul speaks this way and Jesus does as well. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4, he says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high places. Those are the kinds of people you'd think you'd be in spiritual warfare against in this day and age. And Paul's too. You have to remember when Paul was doing ministry, uh, his emperors were uh, Nero and Caligula. Okay, So that's who he's talking about. He's talking about Nero and Caligula. He says, Be in supplication and prayers and thanksgiving made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it, pleases, and ple- it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Well, that doesn't sound at all like warfare. But Paul says, first of all then, first of all, I urge you, be in prayer and lead quiet and peaceful, godly, dignified lives. Other places, Paul says things like, as much as possible, be at peace with everyone. Or Jesus says that we are to love our enemies. And so, are some of these verses wrong? Are we at war or aren't we at war? Paul, you use this language of war in places, and then you use this language of peace. We are at war, but what kind of war? And God has a strategy in this text that people would be saved. Okay, understand, there's a strategy that people are going to be saved. Right? He says, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. So there's a goal in our war. There's an outcome that God wants. He wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So there's a strategy going on here. And what is the strategy? In order to accomplish that strategy, we have to fight a different kind of war. It's a spiritual war to keep peace so that the gospel can work. Satan's tactic is to spread strife and enmity and hate and chaos and anarchy in our lives. Satan's tactic is to disrupt. That's the method of Satan. And so we fight a spiritual battle to keep peace and gentleness and kindness and self-control so that people can see the gospel in our quiet, peaceful lives. Remember, in describing the armor, Paul says that we should wear the sandals of readiness with the gospel of peace. Our equipment is to bring peace. Well, as I mentioned, there's 21 sermons on this text and I chose to summarize here. (laughs) But I think what Paul wants us to see in the conclusion of Ephesians is that as Christians who know the love of God and have our identity in Christ, we are on a special mission that we must be aware of and we must be equipped for. 
We must equip ourselves with truth, with righteousness, with faith, with salvation, with the word of God, and with the gospel of peace in order to wage a spiritual war for peace. We are in a battle where we fight with peace for peace. Satan has many schemes, and he will bend every effort towards destroying those who are unaware and unequipped. And so at all times be praying that the peace of God rule in your life, that you are not unaware of the devil's schemes, and that you counteract every scheme that the devil tries to sow disruption and discord and chaos and anarchy. You counter that scheme with the gospel of peace, with forgiveness, with mercy, with love. And you do not get caught into the trap of thinking that your battle is against people, even no matter how different those people are from you, how differently they think from you, no matter how hostile they are towards you, your battle is not against flesh and blood. That's just the trickery of the evil one. You counteract the schemes of the devil to disrupt and cause chaos and hatred and hostility. You do that through prayer and truth and righteousness and faith in the gospel. If we wage war against these things and not against people, it will be good and pleasing to God. And it will provide opportunity for people to see the gospel at the center of our lives. And so we want to remember that we are at war, but we don't want to fight the wrong enemy. We want to be rightly equipped. And we want to find our strength in God. Because Satan has many schemes. But with God, we will be victorious. Let's pray. Father God, it's easy for us in our culture to forget that there's a spiritual battle going on. It's even more easy for us to aim our sights at the wrong target and to fire the wrong kind of gun. We aim at people that are different than us or politicians that threaten our way of life or just neighbors that we don't really like. And we wage war against people rather than against the spiritual forces that are really behind it all. And we tend at the same time to make the same mistake the world does and we pick up weapons of conflict and hostility. We have to somehow dig in and win on our terms when in fact you say that we're to love our enemies and that we are to live peaceful lives. We're to turn the other cheek we're to return hatred with love. So, Father, I pray for us that we would know that there is a spiritual battle and even more importantly that we would understand that we fight the right enemy and not the wrong enemy and that we fight this enemy with the gospel of truth. Father, you are good in every way. Even the way you wage war is good. You teach us to wage peace with love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.